The Soul Winner by C. H. Spurgeon Prefatory Note This volume is issued in accordance with a plan formed by Mr. Spurgeon. Indeed, he had already prepared for the press the greater part of the material here published, and the rest of his manuscripts have been inserted after only slight revision. It was his intention to deliver to the students of the pastor's college a short course of lectures on what he terms the most royal employment, soul winning. And having completed the series, he purposed to collect his previous utterances to order audiences upon the same theme and to publish the whole of the guidance of all who desire to become soul winners and with the hope also of inducing many more professing Christians to engage in this truly blessed service for the Savior. This explanation will account for the form in which the topic is treated in the present book. The first six chapters contain the college lectures, then follow four addresses delivered to Sunday school teachers, open-air preachers, and friends gathered at Monday evening prayer meetings at the tabernacle, while the rest of the volume consists of sermons in which the work of winning souls is earnestly commended to the attention of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. For more than 40 years, Mr. Spurgeon was, by his preaching and writing, one of the greatest soul winners, and by his printed words still continues to be the means of the conversion of many all over the world. It is believed, therefore, that thousands will rejoice to read what he spoke and wrote concerning what he called the chief business of the Christian minister. Chapter 1, page 1. What is it to win a soul? I purpose, dear brethren, if God shall enable me, to deliver you a short course of lectures under the general head, The Soul Winner. Soul winning is the chief business of the Christian minister. Indeed, it should be the main pursuit of every true believer. We should each say, with Simon Peter, I go a-fishing, and with Paul our aim should be that I might by all means save some. We shall commence our discourses upon this subject by considering the question, what is it to win a soul? This may be instructively answered by describing what it is not. We do not regard it to be soul winning to steal members out of churches already established and train them to utter our peculiar shibboleth. We aim rather at bringing souls to Christ than at making converts to our synagogue. There are sheep stealers abroad concerning whom I will say nothing except that they are not brethren or at least they do not act in a brotherly fashion. To their own master they must stand or fall. We count it utter meanness to build up our own house with the ruins of our neighbor's mansions. We infinitely prefer to quarry our own selves. I hope we all sympathize in the large-hearted spirit of Dr. Calmers, who, when it was said that such and such an effort would not be beneficial to the special interest of the Free Church of Scotland, although it might promote a general religion of the land, said, What is the free church compared with the Christian good of the people of Scotland? What indeed is any church, or what are all the churches put together as mere organizations, if they stand in conflict with the moral and spiritual advantage of the nation, or if they impede the kingdom of Christ? It is because God blesses men through the churches that we desire to see them prosper and not merely for the sake of the churches themselves. There is such a thing as selfishness 
in our eagerness for the aggrandizement of our own party, and from this evil spirit may grace deliver us. The increase of the kingdom is more to be desired than the growth of a clan. We would labor earnestly to raise a believer in salvation by free will into a believer in salvation by grace, for we long to see all religious teaching built upon the solid rock of truth and not upon the sand of imagination. But at the same time, our grand object is not the revision of opinions, but the regeneration of natures. We would bring men to Christ, not to our own peculiar views of Christianity. Our first care must be that the sheep should be gathered to the great shepherd. There will be time enough afterward to secure them for our various folds. To make proselytes is a suitable labor for Pharisees. To beget men unto God is the honorable aim of ministers of Christ. In the next place, we do not consider soul winning to be accomplished by hardly inscribing names upon our church roll in order to show a good increase at the end of the year. This is easily done, and there are our brethren who use great pains not to say arts to effect it. But if it be regarded as the alpha and omega of a minister's efforts, the result will be deplorable. By all means, let us bring true converts into the church, for it is a part of our work to teach them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded them. But still, this is to be done to disciples and not to mere professors. And if care be not used, we may do more harm than good at this point. To introduce unconverted persons to the church is to weaken and degrade it, and therefore an apparent gain may be a real loss. I am not among those who decry statistics, nor do I consider that they are productive of all manner of evil, for they do much good if they are accurate, and if men use them lawfully. It is a good thing for people to see the nakedness of the land through statistics of decrease, that they may be driven on their knees before the Lord to seek prosperity. And on the other hand, it is by no means an evil thing for workers to be encouraged by having some account of results set before them. I should be very sorry if the practice of adding up and deducting and giving in at the net result were to be abandoned, for it must be right to know our numerical condition. It has been noticed that those who object to the process are often brethren whose unsatisfactory reports should somewhat humiliate them. This is not always so, but it is suspiciously frequent. I heard of the report of a church the other day in which the minister, who was well known to have reduced his congregation to nothing, somewhat cleverly wrote, Our church is looking up. When he was questioned with regard to this statement, he replied, Everybody knows the church is on its back, and it cannot do anything else but look up. When churches are looking up in that way, their pastors generally say that statistics are very delusive things and that you cannot tabulate the work of the Spirit and calculate the prosperity of a church by figures. The fact is, you can reckon very correctly if the figures are honest, and if all circumstances are taken into consideration. If there is no increase, you may calculate with considerable accuracy that there is not much being done. And if there is a clear decrease among a growing population, you may reckon that the prayers of the people and the preaching of the minister are not of the most powerful kind. But still, all hurry to get members into the church 
is most mischievous, both to the church and to the supposed converts. I remember very well several young men who were of good moral character and religiously hopeful, but instead of searching their hearts and aiming at their real conversion, the pastor never gave them any rest till he had persuaded them to make a profession. He thought that they would be under more bonds to holy things if they professed religion, and he felt quite safe in pressing them, for they were so hopeful. He imagined that to discourage them by vigilant examination might drive them away, and so to secure them he made them hypocrites. These young men are, at the present time, much further off from the church of God than they would have been if they had been affronted by being kept in their proper places and warned that they were not converted to God. It is a serious injury to a person to receive him into the number of the faithful unless there is good reason to believe that he is really regenerate. I am sure it is so, for I speak after careful observation. Some of the most glaring sinners known to me were once members of a church, and were, as I believe, led to make a profession by undue pressure, well meant but ill-judged. Do not therefore consider that soul-winning is or can be secured by the manipulation of baptisms and the swelling of the size of your church. What mean these dispatches from the battlefield? Last night fourteen souls were under conviction, fifteen were justified, and eight received full sanctification. I am wary of this public bragging, this counting of unhatched chickens, this exhibition of doubtful spoils. Lay aside such numberings of the people, such idle pretense of certifying in half a minute that which will need the testing of a lifetime. Hope for the best, but in your highest excitements be reasonable. Inquiry rooms are all very well, but if they lead to idle boastings, they will grieve the Holy Spirit and work abounding evil. Nor is it soul-winning, dear friends, merely to create excitement. Excitement will accompany every great movement. We might justly question whether the movement was earnest and powerful if it was quite as serene as a drawing-room Bible reading. You cannot very well blast great rocks without the sound of explosions, nor fight a battle and keep everybody as quiet as a mouse. On a dry day a carriage is not moving much along the roads unless there is some noise and dust. Friction and stir are the natural results of force and motion. So when the Spirit of God is abroad and man's minds are stirred, there must and will be certain visible signs of movement, although these must never be confounded with the movement itself. If people imagine that to make a dust is the object aimed at by the rolling of a carriage, they can take a broom and very soon raise as much dust as fifty coaches but they will be committing a nuisance rather than conferring a benefit. Excitement is an accidental as the dust, but it is not for one moment to be aimed at. When the woman swept her house, she did it to find her money, and not for the sake of raising a cloud. Do not aim at sensation and effect. Flowing tears and streaming eyes, sobs and outcries, crowded after meetings and all kinds of confusion may occur, it may be borne with an accompaniment of genuine feelings, but pray, do not plan their production. It very often happens that the converts that are born in excitement die when the excitement is over. They are like certain insects which, 
are the product of an exceedingly warm day and die when the sun goes down. Certain converts live like salamanders in the fire, but they expire at a reasonable temperature. I delight not in the religion which needs or creates a hothead. Give me the godliness which flourishes upon Calvary rather than upon Vesuvius. The utmost zeal for Christ is consistent with common sense and reason. Raving, ranting, and fanaticism are products of another zeal which is not according to knowledge. We would prepare men for the chamber of communion and not for the padded room at Bedlam. No one is more sorry than I that such a caution as this should be needful. But remembering the vagaries of certain wild revivalists, I cannot say less, and I might say a great deal more. What is the real winning of a soul for God? So far as this is done by instrumentality, what are the processes by which a soul is led to God and to salvation? I take it that one of its main operations consists in instructing a man that he may know the truth of God. Instruction by the gospel is the commencement of all real work upon men's minds. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Teaching begins the work and crowns it too. The gospel according to Isaiah is, Incline your ear and come unto me. Here and your soul shall live. It is ours then to give men something worth their hearing, in fact to instruct them. We are sent to evangelize or to preach the gospel to every creature, and that is not done unless we teach them the great truths of revelation. The gospel is good news. To listen to some preachers, you would imagine that the gospel was a pinch of sacred snuff to make them wake up, or a bottle of ardent spirits to excite their brains. It is nothing of the kind. It is news. There is information in it. There is instruction in it concerning matters which men need to know, and statements in it calculated to bless those who hear it. It is not a magical incantation or a charm whose force consists in a collection of sounds. It is a revelation of facts and truths which require knowledge and belief. The gospel is a reasonable system, and it appeals to men's understanding. It is a matter for thought and consideration, and it appeals to the conscience and the reflecting powers. Hence, if we do not teach men something, we may shout, Believe! 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 But what are they to believe? Every exhortation requires a corresponding instruction or it will mean nothing. Escape from what? This requires for its answer the doctrine of the punishment of sin. Fly, but whither? Then must you preach Christ in his wounds, yea, the clear doctrine of atonement by sacrifice. Repent, of what? Here you must answer such questions as, what is sin? What is the evil of sin? What are the consequences of sin? Be converted. But what is it to be converted? By what power can we be converted? From what? To what? The field of instruction is wide if men are to be made to know the truth which saves. That the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. And it is ours as the Lord's instruments to make men so to know the truth that they may believe it and feel its power.
We are not to try to save men in the dark, but in the power of the Holy Ghost we are to seek to turn them from darkness to light. And do not believe, dear friends, that when you go into revival meetings or special evangelistic services, you are to leave out the doctrines of the gospel. For you ought then to proclaim the doctrines of grace rather more than less. Teach gospel doctrines clearly, affectionately, simply, and plainly, and especially those truths which have a present and practical bearing upon man's condition in God's grace. Some enthusiasts would seem to have imbibed the notion that, as soon as a minister addresses the unconverted, he should deliberately contradict his usual doctrinal discourses, because it is supposed that there will be no conversions if he preaches the whole counsel of God. It just comes to this, brethren, it is supposed that we are to conceal truth and utter a half-falsehood in order to save souls. We are to speak the truth to God's people because they will not hear anything else. But we are to wheedle sinners into faith by exaggerating one part of truth and hiding the rest until a more convenient season. This is a strange theory and yet many endorse it. According to them, we may preach the redemption of a chosen number of God's people, but universal redemption must be our doctrine when we speak with the outside world. We are to tell believers that salvation is all of grace, but sinners are to be spoken with as if they were to save themselves. We are to inform Christians that God the Holy Spirit alone can convert, but when we talk with the unsaved, the Holy Ghost is scarcely to be named. We have not so learned Christ. Thus others have done. Let them be our beacons and not our examples. He who sent us to win souls neither permits us to invent falsehoods nor to suppress truth. His work can be done without such suspicious methods. Perhaps some of you will reply, but still God has blessed half-statements and wild assertions. Be not quite so sure. I venture to assert that God does not bless falsehood. He may bless the truth which is mixed up with error, but much more of blessing would have come if the preaching had been more in accordance with his own word. I cannot admit that the Lord blesses evangelistic Jesuitism, and the suppression of truth is not too harshly named when I so describe it. The withholding of the doctrine of the total depravity of man has wrought serious mischief to many who have listened to a certain kind of preaching. These people do not get a true healing because they do not know the disease under which they are suffering. They are never truly clothed because nothing is done towards stripping them. In many ministries there is not enough of probing the heart and arousing the conscience by the revelation of man's alienation from God and by the declaration of the selfishness and wickedness of such a state. Men need to be told that except divine grace shall bring them out of their enmity to God, they must eternally perish, and they must be reminded of the sovereignty of God, that he is not obliged to bring them out of this state, that he would be right and just if he left them in such a condition, that they have no merit to plead before him and no claims upon him, but that if they are to be saved, it must be by grace and grace alone. The preacher's work is to throw sinners down in utter helplessness that they may be compelled to look up to him who alone can help them. To try to win a soul for Christ by keeping that soul in ignorance 
of any truth is contrary to the mind of the spirit. And to endeavor to save men by mere claptrap or excitement or oratorical display is as foolish as to hope to hold an angel with birdlime or lure a star with music. The best attraction is the gospel in its purity. The weapon with which the Lord conquers men is the truth as it is in Jesus. The gospel will be found equal to every emergency, an arrow which can pierce the hardest heart, a bomb which will heal the deadliest wound. Preach it and preach nothing else. Rely implicitly upon the old, old gospel. You need no other nets when you fish for men. Those your master has given you are strong enough for the great fishes and have meshes fine enough to hold the little ones. Spread these nets and no others, and you need not fear the fulfillment of his word. I will make you fishers of men. Secondly, to win a soul, it is necessary not only to instruct our hearer and make him know the truth, but to impress him so that he may feel it. A purely didactic ministry, which should always appeal to the understanding and should leave the emotions untouched, would certainly be a limping ministry. The legs of the lame are not equal, says Solomon, and the unequal legs of some ministries cripple them. We have seen such a one limping about with a long doctrinal leg, but a very short emotional leg. It is a horrible thing for a man to be so doctrinal that he can speak coolly of the doom of the wicked, so that if he does not actually praise God for it, it costs him no anguish of heart to think of the ruin of millions of our race. This is horrible. I, I hate to hear the terrors of the Lord proclaimed by men whose hard visages, hard tongues, and unfeeling spirits betray a sort of doctrinal defecation. All the milk of human kindness is dried out of them. Having no feeling himself, such a preacher creates none, and the people sit and listen while he keeps to dry, lifeless statements until they come to value him for being sound, and they themselves come to be sound too. And I need not add, sound asleep also, or what life they have is spent in sniffing out heresy and making earnest men offenders for a word. Into the Spirit may we never be baptized. Whatever I believe or do not believe, the command to love my neighbor as myself still retains its claim upon me, and God forbid that any views or opinions should so contract my soul and harden my heart as to make me forget this law of love. The love of God is first, but this by no means lessens the obligation of love to man. In fact, the first command includes the second. We are to seek our neighbor's conversion because we love him, and we are to speak to him in loving terms, God's loving gospel, because our heart desires his eternal good. A sinner has a heart as well as a head. A sinner has emotions as well as thoughts, and we must appeal to both. A sinner will never be converted until his emotions are stirred. Unless he feels sorrow for sin, unless he has some measure of joy in the reception of the word, you cannot have much hope of him. The truth must soak into the soul and dye it with its own color. The word must be like a strong wind sweeping through the whole heart and swaying the whole man, even as a field of ripening corn waves in the summer breeze. Religion without emotion is religion without life. But still, we must mind how these emotions are caused. 
Do not play upon the mind by exciting feelings which are not spiritual. Some preachers are very fond of introducing funerals and dying children into their discourses, and they make the people weep through sheer natural affection. This may lead up to something better, but in itself, what is its value? What is the good of opening up a mother's griefs or a widow's sorrows? I do not believe that our merciful Lord has sent us to make men weep over their departed relatives by digging anew their graves and rehearsing past scenes of bereavement and woe. Why should he? It is granted that you may profitably employ the deathbed of a departed Christian or of a dying sinner for proof of the rest of faith in the one case, in the terror of conscience in the other. But it is out of the fact proved and not out of the illustration itself that the good must arise. Natural grief is of no service in itself. Indeed, we look upon it as a distraction from higher thoughts and as a price too great to exact from tender hearts unless we can repay them by engrafting lasting spiritual impressions upon the stock of natural affection. It was a very splendid oration full of pathos, says one who heard it. Yes, but what is the practical outcome of this pathos? A young preacher once remarked, Were you not greatly struck to see so large a congregation weeping? Yes, said his judicious friend, but I was more struck with the reflection that they would probably have wept more at a play. Exactly so, and the weeping in both cases may be equally valueless. I saw a girl on board of a steamboat reading a book and crying as if her heart would break. But when I glanced at the volume, I saw that it was only one of those silly yellow-covered novels which load our railway bookstalls. Her tears were a sheer waste of moisture, and so are those which are produced by mere pulpit tale-telling and deathbed painting. If our hearers will weep over their sins and after Jesus, let their tears flow in rivers. But if the object of their sorrow is merely natural and not at all spiritual, what good is done by setting them weeping? There might be some virtue in making people joyful, for there is sorrow enough in the world, and the more we can promote cheerfulness, the better. But what is the use of creating needless misery? What right have you to go through the world pricking everybody with your lancet just to show your skill in surgery? A true physician only makes incisions in order to effect cures, and a wise minister only excites painful emotions in men's minds with the distinct object of blessing their souls. You and I must continue to drive at men's hearts till they are broken, and then we must keep on preaching Christ crucified till their hearts be bound up. And when this is accomplished, we must continue to proclaim the gospel till their whole nature is brought into subjection to the gospel of Christ. Even in these preliminaries, you will be made to feel the need of the Holy Ghost to work with you and by you. But this need will be sure more evident when we advance a step further and speak of the new birth itself in which the Holy Spirit works in a style and manner most divine. I have already insisted upon instruction and impression as most needful to soul winning. But these are not all. They are, indeed, only means to the desired end. A far greater work must be done before a man is saved. A wonder of divine grace 
must be wrought upon the soul for transcending anything which can be accomplished by the power of man. Of all whom we would fain win for Jesus, it is true, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Holy Ghost must work regeneration in the objects of our love, or they never can become possessors of eternal happiness. They must be quickened into a new life, and they must become new creatures in Jesus Christ. The same energy which accomplishes resurrection and creation must put forth all its power upon them. Nothing short of this can meet the case. They must be born again from above. This might seem at first sight to put human instrumentality altogether out of the field. But on turning to the scriptures, we find nothing to justify such an inference and much of quite an opposite tendency. There we certainly find the Lord to be all in all, but we find no hint that the use of means must therefore be dispensed with. The Lord's supreme majesty and power are seen all the more gloriously because he works by means. He is so great that he is not afraid to put honor upon instruments he employs by speaking of them in high terms and imputing to them great influence. It is sadly possible to say too little of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, I fear this is one of the crying sins of the age. But yet that infallible word, which always rightly balances truth, while it magnifies the Holy Ghost, does not speak lightly of the men by whom he works. God does not think his own honor to be so questionable that it can only be maintained by decrying the human agent. There are two passages in the epistles which, when put together, have often amazed me. Paul compares himself both to a father and to a mother in the matter of the new birth. He says of one convert, whom I have begotten in my bonds, and of a whole church, he says, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. This is going very far indeed much farther than modern orthodoxy would permit the most useful minister to venture, and yet it is the language sanctioned, yea, dictated by the Spirit of God himself, and therefore it is not to be criticized. Such mysterious power doth God infuse into the instrumentality which he ordains that we are called laborers together with God. And this is at once the source of our responsibility and the ground of our hope. Regeneration, or the new birth, works a change in the whole nature of man, and so far as we can judge, its essence lies in the implantation and creation of a new principle within the man. The Holy Ghost creates in us a new, heavenly, and immortal nature, which is known in Scripture as the Spirit, by way of distinction from the soul. Our theory of regeneration is that man in his fallen nature consists only of body and soul and that when he is regenerated, there is created in him a new and higher nature, the Spirit, which is a spark from the everlasting fire of God's life and love. This falls into the heart and abides there, and makes its receiver a partaker of the divine nature. Thenceforward, the man consists of three parts, body, soul, and spirit, and the Spirit is the reigning power of the three. You will all remember that memorable chapter upon the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, where the distinction 
is well brought out in the original and may even be perceived in our version. The passage rendered, it is sown a natural body, etc., might be read, it is sown a soulish body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a soulish body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is soulish, and afterward that which is spiritual. We are first in the natural or soulish stage of being, like the first Adam, and then in regeneration we enter into a new condition and we become possessors of the life-giving spirit. Without this spirit no man can see or enter the kingdom of heaven. It must therefore be our intense desire that the Holy Spirit should visit our hearers and create them anew, that he would come down on these dry bones and breathe eternal life into the dead in sin. Till this is done, they can never receive the truth, for the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. A new and heavenly mind must be created by omnipotence, or the man must abide in death. You see then that we have before us a mighty work for which we are of ourselves totally incapable. No minister living can save a soul, nor can all of us together, nor all the saints on earth or in heaven work regeneration in a single person. The whole business on our part is the height of absurdity unless we regard ourselves as used by the Holy Ghost and filled with his power. On the other hand, the marvels of regeneration which attend our ministry are the best seals and witnesses of our commission, whereas the apostles could appeal to the miracles of Christ and to those which they wrought in his name. We appeal to the miracles of the Holy Ghost, which are as divine and as real as those of our Lord himself. These miracles are the creation of a new life in the human bosom, and the total change of the whole being of those upon whom the Spirit descends. As this God-begotten spiritual life in men is a mystery, we shall speak to more practical effect if we dwell upon the signs following and accompanying it, for these are the things we must aim at. First, regeneration will be shown in conviction of sin. This we believe to be an indispensable mark of the Spirit's work the new life as it enters the heart causes intense inward pain as one of its first effects. Though nowadays we hear of persons being healed before they have been wounded and brought into a certainty of justification without ever having lamented their condition, we are very dubious as to the value of such healings and justifyings. This style of things is not according to the truth. God never clothes men until he first strips them, nor does he quicken them by the gospel till first they are slain by the law. When you meet with persons in whom there is no trace of conviction of sin, you may be quite sure that they have not been wrought upon by the Holy Spirit. For when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. 
When the Spirit of the Lord breathes on us, he withers all the glory of man, which is but as the flower of grass, and then he reveals a higher and abiding glory. Do not be astonished if you find this conviction of sin to be very acute and alarming. But on the other hand, do not condemn those in whom it is less intense. For so long as sin is mourned over, confessed, forsaken, and abhorred, you have an evident fruit of the Spirit. Much of the horror and unbelief which goes with conviction is not of the Spirit of God, but comes of Satan or corrupt nature. There must be true and deep conviction of sin, and this the preacher must labor to produce, for where this is not felt, the new birth has not taken place. Equally certain is that true conversion may be known by the exhibition of a simple faith in Jesus Christ. You need not that I speak unto you of that, for you yourselves are fully persuaded of it. The production of faith is the very center of the target at which you aim. The proof to you that you have won the man's soul for Jesus is never before you till he has done with himself and his own merits and has closed in with Christ. Great care must be taken that this faith be exercised upon Christ for a complete salvation and not for a part of it. Numbers of persons think that the Lord Jesus is available for the pardon of past sin, but they cannot trust him for their preservation in the future. They trust for years past, but not for years to come. Whereas no such subdivision of salvation is ever spoken of in the scriptures as the work of Christ, either he bore all our sins or none, and he either saves us once for all or not at all. His death can never be repeated, and it must have made expiation for the future sin of believers, or they are lost, since no further atonement can be supposed and future sin is certain to be committed. Blessed be his name. By him all that believe are justified from all things. Salvation by grace is eternal salvation. Sinners must commit their souls to the keeping of Christ to all eternity. How else are they saved men? Alas, according to the teaching of some, believers are only saved in part, and for the rest they must depend upon their future endeavors. Is this the gospel? I trow not. Genuine faith trusts a whole Christ for the whole of salvation. Is it any wonder that many converts fall away when in fact they were never taught to exercise faith in Jesus for eternal salvation, but only for temporary conversion? A faulty exhibition of Christ begets a faulty faith. And when this pines away, in its own imbecility, who is to blame for it? According to their faith, so it is unto them. The preacher and the professor of a partial faith must unitedly bear the blame of the failure when their poor, mutilated trust comes to a breakdown. I would the more earnestly insist upon this because of semi-legal way of believing is so common. We must urge the trembling sinner to trust wholly and alone upon the Lord Jesus forever, or we shall have him inferring that he is to begin in the Spirit and be made perfect by the flesh. He will surely walk by faith as to the past, and then by works as to the future, and this will be fatal. True faith in Jesus receives eternal life, 
and sees perfect salvation in him whose one sacrifice hath sanctified the people of God once for all. The sense of being saved completely, saved in Christ Jesus, is not, as some suppose, the source of carnal security in the enemy of holy zeal, but the very reverse. Delivered from the fear which makes the salvation of self a more immediate object than salvation from self, and inspired by holy gratitude to his Redeemer, the regenerated man becomes capable of virtue and is filled with the enthusiasm of God's glory. While trembling under a sense of insecurity, a man gives his chief thought to his own interests. But planted firmly on the rock of ages, he has time and heart to utter the new song which the Lord has put into his mouth, and then is his moral salvation complete, for self is no longer the Lord of his being. Rest not content till you see clear evidence in your converse of a simple, sincere, and decided faith in the Lord Jesus. Together with undivided faith in Jesus Christ, there must also be unframed repentance of sin. Repentance is an old-fashioned word not much used by modern revivalists. Oh, said a minister to me one day, it only means a change of mind. This was thought to be a profound observation. Only a change of mind, but what a change! a change of mind with regard to everything. Instead of saying, it is only a change of mind, it seems to me more truthful to say it is a great and deep change, even a change of the mind itself. But whatever the literal Greek word may mean, repentance is no trifle. You will not find a better definition of it than the one given in the children's hymn. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. True conversion is in all men attended by a sense of sin, which we have spoken of under the head of conviction, by a sorrow of sin or holy grief at having committed it, by a hatred of sin which proves that its dominion is ended, and by a practical turning from sin which shows that the life within the soul is operating upon the life without. True belief and true repentance are twins. It would be idle to attempt to say which is born first. All the spokes of a wheel move at once when the wheel moves, and so all the graces commence action when regeneration is wrought by the Holy Ghost. Repentance, however, there must be. No sinner looks to the Savior with a dry eye or a hard heart. Aim, therefore, at heartbreaking, at bringing home condemnation to the conscience, and weaning thy mind from sin, and be not content till the whole mind is deeply and vitally changed in reference to sin. Another proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found in a real change of life, if the man does not live differently from what he did before, both at home and abroad, his repentance needs to be repented of, and his conversion is a fiction. Not only action and language, but spirit and temper must be changed. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.